Hi, I'm Brian Landau, and you're listening to The Drip, a podcast about how to caffeinate your campaigns. Today, I'm joined by David Ward. David is the Director of Public Affairs at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. And in this episode, we talk about leveraging social media as a channel for thought leadership and the complexities that trade organizations are facing now that there are tighter restrictions on political and political adjacent content on social media. Let's talk about LinkedIn for a minute. As you'll hear in a bit, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers have found LinkedIn to be an increasingly important thought leadership channel. There are a lot of reasons for this. I think firstly, Facebook and Twitter have been in the crosshairs of Congress around political misinformation, which has made life harder for trade associations trying to get their message out on those channels. LinkedIn, for the most part, hasn't had to deal with those issues, which enables more creative thought leadership and grassroots advocacy campaigns. Secondly, LinkedIn is a place where people expect to receive business information. You have an audience that is opted in and more likely to be responsive to your brand's content and messaging. Capitol Hill staffers, after all, are on LinkedIn during the day. And finally, LinkedIn is rolling out more marketing-specific features, whether that's newsletters, live video, and finally, audio. In fact, in the very near future, you're going to care much more about your podcast listener numbers on LinkedIn when compared to Apple or Spotify. Venly is an audio workflow that is built for businesses and organizations. Seamlessly create, collaborate, and share your audio content to your channels of thought leadership, like LinkedIn. Venly's players can be pasted into your LinkedIn post through a link, and you can attach tracking pixels to the link for enhanced metrics. You can also support that post with targeted paid media. Can you imagine taking your podcast and actually getting it in front of the right audience with metrics that make sense? This is all done with Venly. Questions about how audio can play a role at your organization? Email me directly at brian at venly.co. That's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at venly, V-E-N-N-L-Y, dot C-O. And now, the great David Ward. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. David Ward is a communications professional with 15 years of experience working for associations, nonprofits, corporations, and political agencies. He currently serves as Director of Public Affairs for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, otherwise known as AEM. David is also a member of the Communications Committee for the Public Affairs Council. David holds a Master's of Arts in Communication from Villanova University, an Executive Master's Degree in Global Strategic Communications from Georgetown University's EMPS program. He lives in Alexandria with his wife and two kids. As a diehard Syracuse University basketball fan, it's kind of brutal to talk to someone with degrees from Villanova and Georgetown. Well, I, I don't think it's much to worry about with Georgetown these days, but Villanova, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. It, it's been a good decade for Villanova basketball. Mm-hmm. All right. So for those uh, who are listening who maybe are less familiar with AEM, can you just at a very high level describe the work that the association does? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I know when I first joined, it was a lot of syllables and, and um, complicated words perhaps to dig through, but what it really means is that we're, we're a thousand member order uh, member organization with large, medium, smaller sized equipment manufacturers. And that includes brands like, you know, John Deere who build those tractors or, or Caterpillar and their excavators and, and a lot of other pieces of equipment. Um, and we have a headquarters in Milwaukee uh, and then a, a DC office uh, focused on sort of policy and advocacy work. And we actually have offices in Canada and in China as well. So we're a global trade association uh, that's about 125 years old. So through the prism of communications, how do you define AEM stakeholders? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the primary, of course, stakeholder is, is our member um, and what they are concerned with and what affects their business and the industry. 
you know, with me being here in DC, my, my, my way of thinking about the stakeholders is not only them, but also the, the policymakers and the types of people who influence their thinking on, on making that policy. So that definitely can include our members and their employees, but of course, you know, reporters, uh, thought leadership, sort of opinion leader type uh, folks on our issues, um, and then another similar types of folks within the DC market. So you have, you have your members, you have your decision makers on Capitol Hill, you have influencers. What are some of the communication channels that you're using for engagement across these different groups? Do they each have discrete strategies or do you view communications more holistically? I do. I mean, I, I definitely envision it more, more holistically and, and have sort of a top-down approach when it comes to, you know, communication is, is that sort of vehicle that we approach everything that we do. Everything is communications um, with these stakeholders. You know, our preferred method, of course, is always going to be in-person uh, or in these times virtual if, if we have to. But a lot of that type of uh, meeting communication is happening with my policy colleagues and our lobbyists, you know, having those sit-down meetings, having those fly-ins. Uh, I definitely help advise and, and think about ways to set up those meetings or the message that we're communicating um, and other things. But a lot of the other types of communication that I'm doing on a regular basis, of course, is engaging with the media, thinking through our, our, our content, our digital media strategy, our social media strategy, things that we're trying to place externally that is shaping the environment that this sort of policy discussion is happening in DC and, and in home markets where we're relevant in terms of uh, policymakers who, who really matter on certain committees or, or we where we have a heavy footprint um, in terms of our economic uh, impact. Can we do a, a quick lightning round? I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit. So you write, there's thought leadership, right? So that includes blogs, I imagine? Yeah. Video work, there's Zoom webinars and things like that. What other types of content maybe are you doing in, in video? I mean, video content, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely can include uh, st some storytelling and, and kind of explaining about why these policies uh, matter to our members. You know, and our executives can talk through that in a pretty specific way. But we also are doing a lot of, production at times of, of highlighting the everyday worker, whether it's our engineers or mechanics um, or, or folks who, a lot of our folks in the Midwest, which is where we have most of our employees, you know, these are people who are not only building the equipment that are being used on farms, but they are farmers and ranchers themselves. Um, and so the policies that we're advocating for is, is cutting both on both sides. And, and there's different types of sort of stories like that throughout our industry. They're actually pretty interesting. Um, and so, are, I think on, the, on my side, a lot of what I'm trying to do is, is yes, it's the grass tops executives, but trying to raise the, the voices, especially I think these days um, on the grassroots side um, in terms of everyday workers uh, and how these policies are impacting them. Um, and, and then, I mean, on, on thought leadership, yeah, it's, it's, it depends sometimes on what campaign and how we, how we want to produce that uh, type of material. But my, I guess my, my, my final point there would be just that what we're hearing from policymakers, especially on the Democratic side, is that they, they want to get outside the noise of DC and sort of these sort of standard type thought leadership panels and other things. They want to hear directly from the voices on the ground back home. Um, that's the most viable thing to them these days. And so when you capture a story of uh, someone who, who, of a member, for example, you're then distributing that to LinkedIn as a business thought leadership channel or Facebook or Instagram? Are there some priority channels for the actual distribution of it? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is, I mean, what I understand is that LinkedIn is 
the most um, used platform during the day by Capitol Hill uh, staff. Um, I, I, I also understand, I mean, Facebook is still certainly monitored, especially at probably more conservative sides, right? Um, they, they definitely pay attention to what's being said there. Um, we also have uh, direct communication with, with comms, uh, comms officers, press secretaries on the Hill. We have a dedicated piece of content that goes to them now. Uh, so directly hitting that sort of communication audience uh, uh, on the Hill. So it, it varies, right? Um, but we're trying to be mindful about, you know, who pays attention to what and, and how we deliver that content um, to maximize, uh, you know, its impact. The best is now that LinkedIn is starting to feel more and more like Facebook. It, it was its own space. And now like the people posting there, it's just all the same stuff. Okay. So the AEM hosts the largest trade show in the world. It happens every three years. I know that you collaborate closely with the events team in support of this work. Can you please share how you work across departments in support of the trade show? With the event being every three years, I imagine that there's a lot of long-term brand building that needs to happen in support of it. Yeah, I mean, that's the, it's called Con Expo Con Ag. Uh, it's the largest trade show in North America. Uh, it, the, the footprint's just massive. I went to the, my first one back in March last year, actually, right as Vegas was, was closing down to the pandemic. Um, and so that was an interesting experience. Um, and, um, you know, walking wise, it's, uh, you're a bit sore after each day, but huge opportunity for us, right. From, from the advocacy side, considering that's really the, you know, ground zero for how we can directly interact with, um, the voices within our industry, the stakeholders within our industry. Um, and, and so what we, it, it, it's also hard, right? Like there's so much going on in a trade show, especially one like that. They're, they're typically focused on other things that's not advocacy related. They're looking at customers, they're trying to sell their products, they're trying to land deals, they're trying to, to buy products. So you gotta understand that their priority may not be the advocacy uh, message that we're trying to sell to them. Um, so there's not too much uh, in-depth education you can do there, right? So it, it is a bit more on the branding side for sure. I know, Generally, what we try to do is, is look at the sort of high traffic areas, and then we usually try to set up our grassroots program and campaign in some sort of attractive, entertaining way, um, and then try to do some signups. I mean, last we uh, this past show, we did about 15,000 new signups uh, in one week uh, to our grassroots list, which is pretty massive. Um, and then we, you know, we'll, we'll follow up and bring them up that ladder of engagement uh, in the weeks and months that follow. Uh, and that's how we typically approach an event like that. Um, to kind of get their information, get them on board, and then, you know, try to get, get them more and more engaged after that. Can we go a little bit deeper here? So w- what does 15,000 signups mean? Like, what are the outcomes? Like, who are these people and what are you trying to drive against with respect to outcomes? Yeah, I mean, these are 15,000 people who their, their livelihoods depend on, our, on the success of our industry. And so there's, there's really not going to be anyone that's going to, when you're talking about advocacy, you say, a, it, we want to sign you up as part of our grassroots campaign to impact the decisions made in Washington um, and connect that back to their, their jobs or their businesses' livelihood. There's no one else that we're going to talk to typically that's going to care more or kind of connect the two, um, especially uh, in terms of in-person communication there uh, and that sort of massive environment. There's nothing like that uh, between every three years. And so, um, yes, we do some... Uh, engagement and recruitment between those three years. We, we do the visits in different facilities and, and factories throughout the year, right? With camp, with uh, facility tours or, or town hall meetings and things like that. But at that location, uh, at that time of year, 
um, every three years is that it, we get the most bang for a buck, I would say in one week um, to get people who are, have a stake, see the value and in, in getting uh, involved in something like that. And then, you know, we can, as we educate them if, or, or motivate them throughout the year or in years following, whether it's a big infrastructure bill coming up or trade policy uh, that we need to kind of guard against, um, these are the types of people who are going to actually kind of care and, and click on a button at the very least send an email communication to their to the elected member uh, of Congress uh, or possibly do other things throughout the year uh, that'll help kind of again influence the environment in which this conversation is happening to advocate for policies that impact us you, you spoke about this just a little bit before but you know this push and pull it feels like where DC insiders want to get outside of the DC bubble but at the end of the day, infrastructure legislation is something that you need to advocate for, right? You have a position on that. How do you balance the sort of the day-to-day, here are the advocacy goals that we need to drive against versus the stakeholders that you're communicating with who are saying, ah, I need to get out of this little bubble and some of the forms and modes of communication need to evolve? Yeah, I mean, I, you're gonna, you're, it's one of those things you're, you have to do a little bit of both, of course. Like the the staff need to be informed. They want to, they want to feel like they have a, a pulse on things and they rely on, on on groups like ours to be able to, you know, narrow the attention on what we're hearing from our members uh, in a succinct way, so they know, hey, if I do make this decision or if I suggest this this sort of policy on uh, next issue, I, I heard from the equipment manufacturers who re- represent you know one out of eight manufacturing jobs in the U.S. Um, I heard from them, so I know what what I can suggest to my boss uh, about how to vote. But you know, sometimes. Uh, that may not be enough, right? Uh, we want to be able to make sure that they know uh, whenever there's an opportunity, um, you know, the face of, of what their decision, um, you know, the face of the people who that's going to impact. Uh, and, and especially for folks who, you know, may not be our champions, but folks who, who do kind of get it, but need to kind of get it a bit better, right? We want to make sure that they have an opportunity to kind of uh, invite them back home. Um, they can see it firsthand, talk to those people firsthand, and they can connect it, um, you know, both sides of that equation a bit better than if it was just us sitting down in DC office. Is there an example of a campaign or an initiative, an event that you've done recently that you think is particularly successful and unique? Yeah, I mean, I would say related to this conversation, especially, I mean, just this past month, uh, President Biden went to Milwaukee uh, for his first presidential town hall. And that is, like I said, that's our headquarters. That's our hometown. So we developed a pretty targeted strategy uh, to get our advocacy message out, get our policy priority message out to uh, him and his administration uh, in advance and during the town hall. I would say in a pretty successful way. I mean, we, we largely just spent, you know, uh, uh, not that much money to get a full page ad in, in the Journal Sentinel, uh, to get some ads running on the, on the cable provider for the White House. Uh, and from my understanding, the, the Air Force One as well. Um, ultimately, not that much money to get uh, our, 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 our message out to him and his staff, which ultimately led to um, our information and our ads being placed in his briefing book ahead of the town hall. We got attention from Fox News, from the New York Times, from Punchbowl News. Um, you know, I, I think a, an ad equivalent value of about over half a million dollars. Um, and you know, the, with the sweet spot being the fact that we were in his briefing book and we got their attention. Um, he didn't even mention manufacturing during his town hall Q&A with CNN, but the fact that we got so much attention on manufacturing and on our industry specifically during that time period 
was a huge win for us. Um, and so um, I think it was a great, I think, opportunity to identify the fact that, especially once he got out of the DC market, um, it became a bit more, especially these days with folks like mine or, you know, organizations like mine where you have maybe a little bit less budget than you did last year or the year before because of being more conservative with, with your resources. You know, identifying those top opportunities where you develop a bit of a hybrid earned paid social campaign um, and a local market like that, you can save money and, you know, cut through the noise a little bit better uh, than you would uh, maybe if it's in the DC market and, and a more kind of normal time period. Social networks across the board, Facebook, Twitter, I think in particular, have worked to clamp down on political misinformation. And I think for those of us who aren't operating within political circles, we think of things like election fraud, and voter fraud, right? As like the big issues that they were trying to, to solve for. But this impacted your work and many of your colleagues who work in association and advocacy work. In what ways have you had to navigate these restrictions? And the second part of the question is, you know, looking into your crystal ball, how do you see social media networks working with political actors, association actors moving forward to help them best share critical information in a healthy, safe way? Yeah, I mean, it's been a kind of roller coaster ride in the last several years uh, and, and uh, seeing how politics and that communication is happening on social channels, uh, you know, especially in the ad side with your the algorithms sort of preferring ad content for a while. And so you on the advocacy front, you were able to, to deliver ads that was getting your message out in a very targeted way, um, in an efficient way. Um, but then with them clamping down on restrictions and misinformation, you had to kind of had to rethink things in terms of how you can put together a campaign that would get noticed beyond the organic reach. And, and for us, I think last year, we, we definitely did look at LinkedIn a bit better or a bit more than we did on, on social for, for Facebook and Twitter because they didn't have those restrictions and uh, claim on being one of the top few social platforms throughout the day on Capitol Hill. So that's how we decided to say, hey, if we're gonna get our, some attention and, and we would typically do, we would hear back from folks in the Hill or in federal offices, hey, I saw your video on my LinkedIn, like I wanna learn more, like we actually would hear that. Um, but uh, you know, recently the social media platforms like Facebook, um, I think the restrictions, it's sort of, it seems like it's going to be um, potentially a, a new opportunity for us to kind of look at that channel as well. Uh, especially when you consider more Republican sort of conservative audiences sort of favor, favor Facebook a bit more than, than Democratic size. And that's an important audience for ours. That'll be an important part of our advocacy strategy and communication strategy moving forward. Um, I, I don't know. In, in the future, we'll see. I suspect that, um, you know, as, as, the election kind of heats up in 2022 or 2024, we could see the restrictions come back in some way, uh, shape or form, uh, and then they get lifted again every two or four years. Um, and people should, you know, I, you probably, when you're putting together a campaign, we don't know what will happen before then, but if, if we're heading to 2022 and we're looking at our budget, we're looking at our strategy, you probably have to sort of think through that possibility, right? Um, in terms of how you could develop certain campaigns in election year and what the options could be. David, thank you again for your time and wisdom today. If you liked today's episode, you are going to love the next conversation with Stacey Burback. Stacey is the head of communications and brand at Cumulo. Thanks again, and until next time, with Stacey.